Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to your emails about grief and loss and possibly suicide. So this episode might be triggering for some, so please you know, proceed with caution. Anonymous Upper Tier Patron wrote in and said, I am dealing with my husband who has terminal cancer. He has left, it has left, the cancer has left him fatigued, disabled, and super narcissistic. Let me start over. I am dealing with my husband who has terminal cancer. The cancer has left him fatigued, disabled, and super narcissistic. His prognosis is five to 10 years-ish left of life. I was actively grieving our life together before the cancer showed up. Part of me is ready to move on. Is this the rebuilding part of my grief? I feel super guilty for having these thoughts of moving on. Yet another part of me can't imagine living like this for possibly 10 more years. And it's continually getting worse. How do I grieve when I'm watching the loss unfold like a train wreck in slow motion? End of email. Yeah, first off, I'll just say, anonymous upper tier patron, that this is tough. There's no easy answer. There's just no way to... Uh, navigate your way through this without a lot of pain, a lot of frustration, perhaps guilt and shame, perhaps relationships reorienting themselves. So yeah, it's, there's no way. And particularly given the way our society is about stuff like this and the way people react around you, um, they might tiptoe around you or they don't bring it up or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing there, you you can feel quite isolated and alone um, and unsupported. You know, people, if if you say, oh, he has terminal cancer and they're, and they're like, how long does he have to live? And you're like, well, maybe 10 years. I imagine a lot of people are just like, oh, well, 10 years. I mean, that's way off, you know, but to know that you're going to die within five to 10 years, I mean, yeah, it's like you said, watching a train wreck in slow motion. So, and this is often the case for people that our our deaths do unfold slowly, particularly as we age, right? You're 78 years old and you've had two heart attacks and you've had a bout of cancer or something and maybe a stroke. And it's just a matter of time. And often for... Um, families and the individual that dies, it's, um, you know, it unfolds slowly. And, uh, you know, with my grandma, for example, she lived to be 101. And in her 80s, she figured she would die soon. She didn't think she would live to be 101. And her and I would talk about her death. And, and she told me that I, uh, she wanted me to sing particular songs at her funeral. She wanted me, me to sing um, Over the Rainbow in particular. And so I started to practice the song thinking it was just around the corner. And then she lived another year and another year. And then, you know, I don't know, something like 15 years later, she died. So I had rehearsed this song for 15 years. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, anyway, point is, is that uh, things can unfold quite slowly. And, and so you're not alone, anonymous upper tier patron. A, a lot of people are with you. And that might be one of the things to do is to find people who are going through what you're going through or have gone through what you're gone through. Because 
they will understand more likely and other people might not. So the pros, there are pros and cons to things unfolding slowly. The pro is you get to prepare and it's not sudden and traumatic. You might even be able to say goodbye in a way that you couldn't otherwise. The cons to it slowly unfolding is it happens very slowly over time and the uh, suffering of each phase is greatly prolonged. Uh, the phase you're in right now is the realization of the impending death, the decline in health, the uh, often the declining mood of the person dying because they're demoralized or in a lot of pain or they develop disabilities. So that's prolonged over time. Um, your life can everyone's life can be put on hold during this time. Uh, in a lot of ways, particularly romantically, right? Because uh, I think as you're thinking about, it's like, and you were saying you were actively grieving before the cancer diagnosis, which I think means that you were thinking about leaving your partner before you heard about the diagnosis. And then the diagnosis comes and you're like, well, I can't leave him now. I, I don't know if this is what you're going through, but I could imagine this could be happening. But then you're like, well, I was planning on leaving him kind of anyway, but is it wrong to leave him in this moment? But he's kind of being a jerk face to me, which I can understand because he's terminal, but I don't think I deserve to live like this. You know, so it puts life on hold. Uh, whereas if he died in a year, then, or you thought it, you know, or the, the prognosis was a year, you might say to yourself, well, I can live with it another year and then I'll do my part to help him. And then after he, you know, departs from this reality, dies, I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll reassess at that point and maybe start dating at that point. Uh, the other thing is, is it's hard to know when uh, to move on, right? Because uh, as you know from research, the grieving process doesn't follow stages, but it vacillates between two positions of grieving and rebuilding. Grieving is feeling the feelings and reminiscing and being angry, being in pain, thinking about it a lot, talking with others about it, you know, doing ceremonies, having nightmares or dreams about it. And that's one state. And then the other state is rebuilding, which is to not think about it, to think about the future, to um, maybe have some joy in your life. And how do you vacillate to rebuilding while the person is dying, especially if it's over five to 10 years? And is it okay to enter rebuilding? Is it okay to say, I, I think I'm ready to move on, not only from this grief, but from this person? And, you know, it, it complicates things for sure. And again, there's no easy way. Um, but I think what you're kind of asking is, is it okay if I break up with them? And what I'll say is absolutely it's okay. Uh, you don't need my permission, but at the very least, I will say that if people shame you, which they probably will, by the way, and judge you, that's not your fault. If, if you were planning on breaking up with them anyway, but even if you wanted to break up, I mean, 
of course, there's no easy answer to this. And, and only you know the answer to this question. And if I were was working, and I have worked with clients in situations like this, I always work with them and really get into the moral dilemma or the dilemma and value the fact that, you know, you could see either side. But at the very least, I will definitely emphasize to the client that they are allowed, so to speak, to choose either direction they want to. It's They're not somehow beholden to stay in their relationship just because the their partner has terminal cancer. It doesn't legally or morally lock them into the relationship. They, they don't have to stay. And you can support someone as they are terminal without being married to them. You could break up with him, divorce him, and still absolutely be there. In fact, maybe even more so because you're not annoyed with him all the time and you're able to live your life. Now, of course, this is going to potentially ruin his life because he would feel very sad about losing you, which is a bummer for him. But if the relationship isn't working out for you, then, you know, it's up to you. Some like I said, some people are going to judge you. Maybe a lot of people, particularly people in his camp, they're going to say, oh my God, she abandoned him when things got tough. And maybe there's a way you can explain and you could say, look, I, our relationship wasn't great to begin with. Maybe there's a way that you could build those relationships so that those judgments don't happen. But in the end, it's your life. And just because his life is coming to an end over the next five to 10 years doesn't mean that you're life needs to be on hold. You deserve to have the life that you want. And if that means breaking up with him and, and, and hurting his feelings, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I'm definitely not saying it's the wrong thing to do. Um, then you ask, you know, how do I grieve? Well, as I always say with grief, you, when you feel like feeling the feelings, you do it. And when you feel like rebuilding, then you do it. You have to listen to your body and you have to fight against any internalized oppression about grief because there's a lot of messages we have internalized from society that tell us that we're grieving wrong at any given point. You're, you're dwelling on it or you're not dwelling on it enough. Um, you are not moving on fast enough or you're not crying enough. You know, there's so much internalized oppression around this. And so you have to be aware of that and push back on it and really listen to your body. When do you need to cry? When do you need to talk about it? When you need to write about it, create, interface with others, go to therapy for it. Uh, and really, when I say feelings, whatever those feelings are, because uh, we have a lot of internalized oppression around feeling anger, um, frustration, maybe even blame to the individual. And that's okay as well. You know, feelings are feelings. They're not actions. And if you are, um, if you're, and particularly uh, if you're in the middle of the storm, it would be very unusual if you didn't have a lot of dark feelings about it. So allow those feelings to be and accept them and, and feel them and talk about them with people that you can trust. Maybe that's a therapist. The other aspect that I think might help is to try to accept what is happening. This is hard to do, and it's much easier said than done. And there's a lot of nuance to this. 
And I don't want to come across like I'm saying you need to move on. That's not what I'm saying. You know, it's because the word acceptance is actually really weird. Um, there are two meanings that I hear people using the word acceptance for. One meaning is, look, you just have to accept what's happening. And essentially the implication is you have to move on. Like, why are you dwelling on the negativity about this? You just, you're, you're really negative about, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying by acceptance is the, um, the Buddhist notion of detachment from aspects that we have no control over. Like we have to accept that we're going to die. We have to accept that time moves forward. We have to accept that we get old and we have to accept that life and everything is impermanent is temporary. And we have to accept that. And when we don't accept those things, a lot of suffering happens because we are constantly butting up and fighting reality. So that's what I mean by acceptance is accepting that life is short, that your your partner is terminal, that your partner is, it sounds like he's mean to you. Uh, you don't have to put up with it. You don't have to allow it to happen, but it just is. And that you're angry and frustrated and sad and you want to move on. Like, accepting a lot of times a lot of suffering happens from the inability to be okay with what is happening that pain is happening that suffering is happening half of suffering can be explained sometimes by our lack of acceptance of the suffering if that makes any sense and so i don't know if that helps but the third thing is to try to find meaning in all of the you know grieving processes, at the end, we hope that people can find meaning and purpose within the narrative, within the loss, within the grief. And no one can tell you what that meaning is, uh, and it's your own path. But to pay attention to it, and this is what I do with my clients, is I'll, I'll just raise the question, because sometimes they're not paying attention to the question, and... Sometimes it takes years to develop that meaning, but you have to be paying attention to it as a person going through the grief. What, what's the meaning of this? Why am I going through this? Why do people go through this? Why is he going through this? Why are we as a couple going through this? What is the meaning? And just to give you an idea of what people will tell me is this is a test from God. This is to make me stronger. This is a lesson the universe is trying to teach me about uh, self-acceptance in the face of judgment from others. This is to teach me that life is short and that I should I should appreciate it. Um, you know, those are just things that people will tell me. And but your path is yours, and so you know, try to find that because if this loss has no meaning, then it's very difficult to accept because it's all bad, right? But people typically, whether it's, I don't know, a delusion or not that we as humans do to ourselves, people typically find meaning, which can be a reason. You know, it, it gives us, uh, it gives order to some extent and or it's a lesson that we learn and or it's post-traumatic growth, which I've talked about, which is that, through the 
you know, the crucible of the loss, it may, it transforms us. And that can be a, we can be an, a new version of ourselves, better version or wiser or something, whatever that is. So, you know, that'd be another thing to pay attention to. All right. This next email is about suicide and there's going to be a lot of emails. I'm looking here in my list of emails. There's a, I clumped them together a lot of emails about suicide. So if you are triggered by such things or might be triggered, I recommend not listening to this and seeking out help from your therapist or get a therapist because talk about suicide can absolutely trigger motivation and attempts. So um, be on the safe side and don't listen. And or if you have lost someone to suicide, this can be you know hard to listen to. But as a clinician and as someone who wants to reduce stigma around talking about suicide, and wants to help and have helped a lot of people with suicide and wants to train helpers of people with, who help people with suicide. It's very important that we talk about it. So that's why I'm doing this. Up to your patron, Ashley from California. She writes, about two weeks ago, my complex PTSD got the better of me and I made a suicide attempt. Work has been nothing short of supportive. They are great. My boss and I had a conference call with my psychiatrist to discuss taking a leave of absence while I was recovering in the hospital, and the CEO herself even reached out to assure me that I can take all the time that I need. My struggle now is that I've been home for a few days without the structure of the hospital or work, and I want to go back to work. I met with my boss yesterday to discuss going back to work, but she very gently told me that she doesn't feel I'm ready and wants my treatment team to give me the okay first. I know I am incredibly lucky to have such support, but work stabilizes me and grounds me in ways nothing else can, not even my marriage or my kids. In your experience, what does someone need in order to return to work after a suicide attempt? End of email. Yeah, hard to say, uh, given what you're saying, but, uh, and the first thing I'll say is good on your work. Your workplace is rare. Um, It's one thing to be, uh, silently okay with something like this. It's another thing for them to reach out to you and to be open about it. So good on them and more workplaces need to do this. And to answer your question of, you know, what does someone need in order to return to work after suicide attempt? I'll tell you what, what I do with clients, which is you have to assess the current risk and you have to assess the likely course of risk moving into the future. And this, this is a kind of a specialized ability. Therapists don't necessarily know this. And I, I've worked a long time training myself kind of on, and trial and error to some extent, learning how to do this. And I work with my trainees on how to assess risk and how to predict risk and attempts in the future. And 99% of the time, the people that I'm working with and colleagues for that matter underplay the risk of suicide because I think it's, it's just, it feels better to just say like, well, I'm sure they won't do it, but we don't operate on wishes. We operate on science and on evidence and assessing risk needs to account for the possibility. The reason why we even assess risk is because the risk level determines the 
precautions that we take so that we can avoid attempting. So it's very important that if someone came to me and said, I want to return to work, but I don't know if I'm ready for it or people are resisting that, I would sit down with you as a client and spend a lot of time figuring out your risk in the past, your risk moving into the future, what led up to your attempt, what are the um, protective factors? What are, you know? What's going to help you to remain safe over time? And what are the triggers? Are there triggers at work that can cause suicide thoughts, or is work a protective factor in that it wards off suicidal uh, progression of risk? Um, are you compliant with treatment? Is another thing that I will really work on with people because if you're compliant then going back to work is less of a problem because I can monitor you uh, day-to-day maybe as you go back to work and, and we can see you know, how you doing, what are the triggers, how you feeling, what's your, how's your depression doing. And then if work seems to be helping, then we can maybe pull back on the daily check-ins. But if work starts to trigger you, then you know we'll be there. And so are you compliant with treatment? Are you drinking alcohol? Are there guns in the house? Are there pills? Are there other means? Uh, do you have support? And um, uh, yeah, all those things. So it really depends. But it sounds like you are saying, I'm ready to go back. And I have determined that going back to work would actually reduce my risk over time. So tell your psychiatrist that. Tell your treatment team that. And they'll very likely take that into consideration. All right, this next email is from patron Liz. She writes, would you be able to make a video about grief reactions and how they can contribute to breakups in relationships? I recently got broken up with by my boyfriend on his ex's birthday. The ex had unfortunately committed suicide two years ago and suffered from borderline personality disorder. I think her birthday and the day that she committed suicide, which was around her birthday, has possibly triggered him as there were no signs of him pulling away from me prior to the anniversary of her death three, two years later. I think these events coming up possibly triggered the breakup. I understand I could be wrong, but I wonder if this is a result possibly of an anniversary reaction. End of email. Yeah, so an anniversary reaction or anniversary grief is um, a phenomenon that we often see, not always for sure, that people will experience an uptick in their grief regard a, a one year, two year, three year um, after the event happened. And I, I, there's a lot of speculations as to why this would be. We have a lot, uh, you know, our memories and our experiences are really tied into a lot of associations, including the seasons and including the time of year. Think about, like for me, whenever I smell uh, cut grass in the fall, I'm instantly transported back to playing football. Because for years, I, as a kid and a teenager, I played football and just that feeling of the crisp air and the moist, because, you know, in Seattle, it's very, it's very wet in the fall and cut grass and so we have these very clear associations sometimes with the time of the year and 
when, particularly if someone dies around a holiday, like, you know, Christmas, they become intrinsically connected for the rest of our lives. These, these terrible events like losing someone. So that's what an anniversary reaction is. And so patron Liz is saying my boyfriend, uh, and I were doing great. And then on two, the two year anniversary of his ex completing suicide, all of a sudden <clears throat> he broke up with me and I'm wondering if it had to do with that. And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. It's possible, <clears throat> but it's hard to tell obviously from your email could be a lot of things. It could be that he was thinking about breaking up with you, but just didn't reveal it. And you know, that, that happens sometimes, but why would an anniversary reaction result in a change in uh, behavior like that. Like one day you're totally into a relationship and then the anniversary of a loss happens and boom, suddenly you're looking at your relationship going, I don't want to be in this relationship. Well, one possibility is longing that someone would long for their deceased loved one and that longing eclipses any love they have for anyone else. Depression can kick in at an, on an anniversary event and can severely alter one's perspective and and uh, motivation withdrawal a, v- a very common effect of grief and particularly complicated grief is withdrawal and and distancing disengaging from relationships because you don't want to get close to people because you don't want to lose them and it's easier to just pull away completely so that could be another possibility Mood issues can result. People can have a short fuse and get more upset at their partners. They might feel like they're being disloyal to their exes. Just imagine that you're going out. I mean, you're saying ex. So does that mean they broke up before the suicide? Either way, it's possible that someone going through that could feel like they're being disloyal to their former partner because they're dating someone else and that causes this conflict with in them and they feel like they need to you know honor the deceased loved one's memory by not dating other people you know there's a lot of reasons of course liz i I don't know if any of those apply to you but you know uh, it's worth talking with him about i hope that you and him are able to talk regardless of getting back together or not and process the breakup and and maybe talk about this possibility. Uh, So, uh, you know, I hope that you're able to talk with him. All right, let's take a break. Get back more emails. All right, we're back from the break. Anonymous listener, she wrote in and said, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Before I received specialist help, I was trying to commit suicide, but now I am okay. But there are many parts of my childhood that I do not remember. However, I dream about my childhood sometimes. My psychologist thinks that I was abused as a child. Is there a possibility that someone may not remember such experiences? So just chiming in here. Yeah, memory is weird, and there are two possibilities as you continue to explore things. One is that you, well, I guess there's maybe three possibilities um, or four, <laughs> the Spanish Inquisition. Um, one possibility is that is that you were abused. Another possibility is that you weren't abused. So let's go with the situations where you 
were abused. One possibility in the future is that as you feel safe in therapy, these memories will emerge and you'll be able to talk about them. That often happens to people. It's not that you don't remember these experiences. It's just that your body isn't ready to acknowledge them yet. And as you feel safer in a secure relationship in therapy, you will have greater access um, or more feel just more safety about um, exploring those in your mind and verbally. The other possibility is that if you were abused is that you'll never remember it. And I've worked with clients like this before where we were pretty sure that they experienced, like I had a client once who she didn't remember anything before the age of nine, like nothing. She had zero memory of where they lived. They lived in a different house and she would look at pictures of her house when she was eight years old and she had no memories of that house. And, um, that's unusual, right? For someone to not remember anything before the age of nine. Cause usually, especially when you jog someone's memory, especially when there are distinctive elements of that life, like living in a different house, you'll have some memories. Um, and I worked with her for a long time. And although it wasn't the primary focus of the therapy, we did occasionally focus on trying to jog those memories because it, it, it was distressful to her that she couldn't remember. And we did a lot of things. And we also, we went to specialists and in the end, after years of trying to access those memories, we never got access to them. So, you know, that happens sometimes. And the idea is, is that we uh, just can't deal with those memories. So we either turn off access to them and, or get rid of them completely or don't encode them as an eight-year-old and you're going through trauma, you can just choose your neurologically to not remember things, to just not encode them because it's too painful to record them to your, your, your memory banks, if you will. And so that can happen. The other possibility is that you weren't abused growing up and you, uh, for just whatever reason, you don't remember things very well. And over time you will start to learn things, you know, being depressed can affect memory sometimes. Um, the other possibilities you weren't abused and you'll never remember and you'll never know. So, uh, anyway, you ask another question here. Why do some people think about suicide, even if they get specialized help? So the answer to this is that, uh, well, first off, I'm really glad you're getting professional help and it's good that you are, able to talk with people about thinking about suicide. It's very, very important. So good for you for doing that. The other thing I'll say is that suicidal ideation, thinking about suicide is, is very common. Research shows that in the U.S., 9% of people will think about suicide at some point in their life. And something like 3% currently are thinking about suicide. And although that's not super common, it's common enough that you probably know a number of people who have or are currently thinking about suicide. And this isn't just like fleeting thoughts. This is, you know, the suicidal ideation I'm talking about right now is, you know, pretty intense. Also, a lot of people die from suicide. In the U.S., one in 67 people will die from suicide. And just think about all the people you know. You probably know a lot more than 67 people. So odds have it that you either know someone who has died by suicide or you will know someone that will die by suicide. 
So there's that. The other thing is, is that it's the second leading cause of death among youth behind accidents. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a common thing. And our rates of suicide are increasing for, I believe, all age groups since the year 2000. I think because of our ever-increasing isolated world. And to some extent in the States, our increase in materialism and always trying to look perfect. You know, there's this perfect uh, expectation on how we look that was not present when I was younger. I mean, certainly we had problems when I was younger, but not anything like we have today. I mean, today we have we have gone so far backwards in our understanding of, or our, I don't know, values about what is good in life and what constitutes a good person due to social media and other kinds of pressures. So um, I think that's one of the causes of the increase in suicide. Um, So, you know, materialism, body dysmorphia issues, and uh, also isolation. Uh, due to, again, our, our values changing away from just normal everyday interacting with people to success and occupation. Anyway, so it's on the rise. Who knows why, but it is. And uh, suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts, suicide completions are, you know, a lot more common than I think people realize. And so when you ask the question, you know, why do some people, including myself, think about suicide even if I'm getting help? Uh, the answer is, well, a lot of people are thinking about suicide. The other thing is is that once, you know, if you've been abused uh, growing up and you have anxiety and depression as a result and suicidality as a, as, a, as a result, it is extremely common for that suicidality to persist for a long period of time. There's various reasons for this, and you would explore this with your professionals, but it's a distressing thing to think about, you know, and I've worked with many clients along these lines is that their suicidality might come and go or just persist for years and years and years, even though uh, they're getting better, their life is getting better. It's a, for some people, an habitual thought that just crosses their mind. And it is, um, it can be managed. It can be uh, controlled in terms of one's risk. There's a whole system that you can put in place. The other thing I'll say is I've worked with clients who have had ongoing suicidality where it's intense for a long stretch of time, if, if months, years, where, you know, I think we have this, um, notion sometimes that if you're suffering and you're alone and you're thinking about suicide and you go to therapy that somehow, or you take a medication that somehow the suicidality will go away. And for some people it doesn't, uh, it's very persistent and, and is very resistant to treatment. And there are ways of managing it for sure. And ways of living with it, shall we say, uh, that therapists know how to, do, you know, in terms of the treatment. And we just have to, in those situations, sometimes just accept, oh, this is here to stay. And we're doing everything we can to reduce it. But it seems like the suicidal intrusive thoughts or the the solution to the problem of life will, you know, just sort of pop into one's mind frequently. 
maybe even seem like a logical choice at times. And we're just going to have to deal with that. And sometimes that means, you know, I've worked with clients who have been really on the fence about suicide. And on one hand, they're like, well, uh, it's, I can't do that to my family. I can't do it to my kids to kill myself. I realize that my intrusive thoughts are probably irrational. But on the other hand, they're like, but it sure would solve a lot of my problems to just not exist. And we session by session are fighting the two of us for their life. You know, I'm bonding with that part of them that doesn't want to die. And we are working together against the part of them that was, that does want to die. And it's a fight, man. It is a struggle. It's a battle. It is not easy. And to act like somehow we have these, easy treatment protocols that solve all those problems is, is ridiculous. So um, having said that, you know, for some people it does go away, um, especially with trauma treatment, recovery with medication. So you can certainly seek that, but you know, maybe uh, some of y'all out there just have this persistent issue. And like I said, there's ways of managing it, not trying because getting rid of it doesn't seem like a likelihood. So just a little check-in here for those of you who might be triggered by this kind of material. Check in with your body, check in with how you feel, and like I said before, skip out of this episode if there's a risk there for you. Uh, Talk with your therapist, talk with your people, make sure you don't isolate that kind of thing. Call the hotline, the suicide hotline, which all you have to do is just type in suicide hotline on your phone and it'll give you that phone number. It's very important that you take care of yourself. Suicide is one of those things that research and my experience shows that the motivation for suicide is temporary. And if you can get through that temporary period, sometimes it's just a just a day or maybe even just a couple hours, then you can emerge on the other side being thankful that you didn't attempt during those hours. So if you're having a spike, um, make sure you get help. And particularly if listening to this episode isn't helpful. All right, this next email, anonymous patron, she writes, why is brain death not spoken about when we talk about suicide, especially men's suicide? My brother committed suicide a few years ago. Just chiming here in here, by the way, uh, we tend not to use the word committed anymore. It's not a terrible word, but it implies a sin, you know, like committing murder, this kind of thing. And we want to not, a lot of people don't want to associate that with a sin or a crime. And we um, want to say things like completed suicide or uh, killed themselves, or sometimes people say take their own life. Anyway, So my brother uh, completed suicide a few years ago, and I've made a lot of progress in healing the trauma since the incident. I can talk about suicide openly, and I can listen to people talk about suicide without distress most of the time. However, something I find that is less spoken about in society connecting to suicide is brain death. My brother used the common method that typically men will use with suicide, which is hanging, And he was found by his girlfriend who managed to give him CPR until the paramedics arrived. He was resuscitated and taken to the hospital and put on life support. After five five days, he was pronounced brain dead and his machines were turned off. 
of the entire experience, the hardest part of the suicide wasn't even the suicide itself. It was experiencing someone I loved, my brother. I loved him more than anyone in the world, and he seemed so vulnerable. It was coming to terms with the fact that he wasn't really there anymore, even though he was warm. It was the hope of being crushed slowly. It was the hope it was the hope being crushed slowly over five days until the doctors had ran all the tests. It was holding his hand and praying he squeezed it back and just woke up. I wonder how common these situations are and why I've never heard anyone talk about it. I talk with all kinds of people about suicide, but no one has ever mentioned the added trauma of brain death to me. Is there a reason it isn't spoken about as much? Or is the case of my brother being resuscitated not as common? End of email. Well, first of all, first off, anonymous patron, I'm really sorry you went through that. It, it, you're a good writer, and I feel like I, you know, got a glimpse of what your life was like during those five days, and it just sounds awful and on so many levels. So I'm sorry you went through that. I'm glad that you've recovered and and healed to a lot extent about the suicide, and now begins the healing from those five difficult days. So you ask, is there a reason isn't spoken about or or is the situation rare? It's not it's not extremely common, but it's it's common enough that I've worked with people in this situation before, for sure. And of course, it's not just uh, only with suicides. This can happen with accidents, brain injury, um, stroke. These kinds of things can um, cause situations like this where there's this period of time where you wonder, is the person really there or have they already left us? Are they going to come back to us? Um, should I be saying good? Should I be saying goodbye or should I just be waiting by their side for them to wake up? Um, their body is alive and aren't they, you know, I'm looking at them and they look like they're just sleeping. How come they don't just wake up? You know, it just doesn't compute in our brain that, you know, they're essentially gone. Uh, and their body is still alive, you know? So, uh, common enough. Um, my dogs are barking. Um, and then you ask, you know, why isn't this talked about more? It's because people don't want to talk about death in general and particularly suicide or having someone taken off life support. These are things that in our culture in America, we are terrified to talk about for a variety of reasons. And as a result, we just don't talk about it. And, the implications of it can really challenge people's belief systems or their anxiety. And um, so uh, it sounds like you're experiencing people talking about suicide in general around you, but that's actually kind of rare. So you probably have a pretty enlightened pocket around you, but it's asking a lot for a cultural pocket to be enlightened enough to talk about what you're talking about. You'd almost like you'd almost have to have someone in your pocket who went through what you went through to, you know, bring it up. Um, the other thing is for those who go through it, there's a lot of reasons why we wouldn't want to think about it. Right. And just like, uh, I just, you know, I, I don't want to relive those moments. It, it was so difficult. And, you know, this is a, uh, in a larger category of things that I will work with, with people like when, well, in my own family, when my grandma died at 101, my aunt who, uh, you know, my grandma's daughter who was a nurse is a nurse and took care of my grandma for decades. Um, 
uh, not only by living with my, you know, my aunt lived with her mom, but also took care of her medical needs for a long time and loved her mom. You know, my aunt loved my grandma a lot. This is my Japanese side of the family, by the way, lives in Spokane, Washington. And when my grandma was, and had, she had gone in and out of the hospital for decades, really, and had a lot of scares. And then when, so my aunt is going through a lot with that. And then when my grandma died um, at the end, she had some kind of physical convulsive like emergency situation. I don't know exactly what happened, but I know that it was very scary and unpleasant and I think traumatic for my aunt to observe because she was there, not as a nurse, but as a, as a loved, loving daughter, just being there with her mom. And it destroyed, I think, I don't know what word I'd put to it, but it was very hard for my aunt to go through that. So, there's a lot of things in this category that we tend not to talk about, you know, and it's not often portrayed in, in movies or, and people aren't necessarily aware of what, of what the end of life can look like. It certainly can look like it does in the movies where people just slowly drift away like Yoda or something. But often it, it gets some, it gets real, if you will. And that can be very difficult for people. And even broadening the category out further is to our animals, to pets, that putting them down can actually also be difficult to observe. And it, it isn't necessarily just a, um, just a calm, uh, peaceful experience. You know, it can be, but it can also be really rough. And, um, and th- there's no, way really around that for us because what's the alternative you know we just turn away or something but at the very least we can acknowledge it and talk about it and bring it out in the open and normalize it for people like yourself anonymous patron who went through that with your brother and you describe it so well that um you know i would it was experiencing someone i loved more than anyone in the world and he seemed so vulnerable it was coming to terms with the fact that he wasn't really there anymore even though he was warm it was the hope. Uh, it, it was the hope being crushed slowly over five days till the doctors ran all the tests. It was holding his hand and praying he squeezed it back and just woke up. And so, that's um, you know that's the reality of these situations. And you went through it, and and a lot of people have gone through things like this. And it's unfortunate that we live in a death phobic society that doesn't acknowledge reality and. And allow those who have gone through it or those who might go through it in the future to at least talk about it. You know, when you go through a, I I always like to provide this example of if you get mugged or if someone breaks into your house or someone breaks into your car, you don't have any worries about telling other people about it. And at a dinner party, you can talk about it. You'd be like, oh my God, last week someone broke into my car and they they took all my they took my bag and you know it it just it feels kind of like a violation it just doesn't feel good and the dinner party isn't going to come screeching to a halt people go oh that sounds bad and you know you can move on to talking about something else maybe there's a little bit of time to talk about it but if you say at a dinner party oh my god my brother you know last year he killed himself and every once in a while i just think about the fact that 
when I was sitting, or well, he he uh, hung himself, but he was brain dead and was resuscitated and in the hospital for five days. And I'm sitting next to him in the hospital holding his hand, and and I was just wrestling with this idea that he wasn't he wasn't really there anymore, but his body was there. It was really weird. If you said that at a dinner party, half the people would be mortified, if you will, that you even brought it up. They would judge you. They'd be like, why was she just being a party pooper? Why was she? That's totally inappropriate. You don't bring stuff like that up at a party. And, you know, you could make an argument that for others, it can be a lot to deal with if, if you brought that up. But I don't know. I um, I think in a lot of situations, it, when are you supposed to talk about it is the thing, <laughs> you know, like why do we have venues where you can talk about some things, but not others. And there's nowhere you can talk about it. You know, if, if there was somewhere you could talk about these things, then okay. But if every venue it's considered impolite or too intense or morbid or something, then we just have a general rule that you're just not supposed to talk about it. So, um, uh, yeah, we just, the fact that you haven't heard about it is because, we just don't talk about it in general. What's surprising is that you find that you're able to talk about the suicide. That's actually kind of rare because a lot of people have a really hard time hearing about that or knowing what to do. And I think that's a big part of it is at a dinner party, someone says, my brother hung himself. He was brain dead. I was next to him. And I was just thinking about it the other day and it was, you know, it was just really tough. I think the problem is that people feel like they are imposed upon like, oh, crap, I have to do something about this. I have to fix it. I have to have the right thing to say. And that's what we need to target uh, to a large degree. We need to tell people, look, you don't have to do anything. Just acknowledge. Just be like, wow, that sounds rough. And if, if the moment seems fine, you can just move on. You can just say, well my job the other day, I had a good day. Like just because someone talks about their grief doesn't mean that everything has to come to a halt. It doesn't mean that it's disrespectful to change the subject at a certain point. And I think this is part of the big problem is that we consider it to be such a huge deal that we say there needs to be a, like a very specific venue for someone to talk about it a venue that might not ever really exist for individuals. And so we need to say it's okay if one, you bring it up, if it seems like, you know, if you're at a dinner party and you know these people well, it's okay to bring it up in my book. And as a listener to it, it's okay to be like, wow, you know, you care because you have empathy and you're just like, wow, that sounds intense. I, I don't know what to say to that. And then the person grieving says, yeah, I don't know either. And then, you just change the subject. You're just like, okay, well, what else do you want to talk about? That's okay. You don't have, it's not disrespectful to not want to talk about it the rest of the evening. <laughs> you know, the, the grieving individual would much rather be able to just say that in the moment and have you change the subject, you know, have you give some respect to it and hear you and have empathy and change the subject than for it not to be able to be brought up. The grief is a regular part of that person's life. It's, and they've, they think about it frequently and they talk about it frequently. This isn't, a, it's not a sacred thing. It's a living life thing, grief. 
And it needs to be more commonplace in terms of, because it is commonplace. Grief is commonplace. Grief is universal. Grief is normal. Everyone is, you know, when just bringing up the whole pet thing, I, you know, I'm brought to tears a little bit just thinking about Michelle, as a lot of you know, what had to be put down, you know, in my head, I keep forgetting how long ago it was in my head. It was, it was a long time ago, but it also in my head, it wasn't that long ago. And I can't remember, was it like April-ish or something? But I don't know. This year's been kind of a blurb. Anyway, it, it's still painful. I'm still living with that grief of Michelle, my cat dying and having, having to be put down. And the feeling that you always get when you have to put your cat down or your dog down, you feel like, did I pull the trigger too soon? Um, should I have waited longer? Uh, you know, cause for Michelle, I I've had to put down uh, a number of my pets and, um, two of one of my cats, when I put him down, he was at death's door and I waited too long and I vowed I would never do that again. Uh, my next cat that I had to put down, I waited a long time and was like, yeah, it's, and he had all sorts of health issues for years. And then with, but with Michelle, it, it was less clear, but you know, definitely the right answer. And if all the vets agreed, and, but it's still, you know, it just eats you up aside. And by the way, I guess while I'm on this topic, my, uh, an old friend of mine died, uh, this week and I, uh, she died suddenly. She was, uh, my age around 50 and had, uh, just this freak hemorrhage and died suddenly. And I, I'm, I'm shaken by that. And I, and I say this not, not to get sympathy for it. Um, but I say it because all of you out there right now, think about when, if you really think about it, and for some of you, it's not hard. Think about the losses that you're grieving right now. And maybe they were losses that happened 25 years ago. I'm lost. I'm, I'm still grieving losses that happened. Yeah. Like 15 years ago and beyond. Um, my grandmother died a hundred, you know, uh, five years ago, I think at the, at the age of 101, um, other losses in my life, breakups, divorces, uh, moves, loss of a job, loss of a friend. These losses are huge loss of a, of an ability, you know, maybe you have a disability now and you lost the ability to walk or the ability to sleep throughout the night or live without pain. You know, these are losses and the grief is real and, and grief is commonplace. That's why I'm bringing up the loss of my friend. I, I wasn't that close to her. So in, in, in the past 10 years or something, or even 20 years for that matter. So it wasn't, it's, it's not a huge impact to me other than it just feels, I feel really bad for her because she suffered so much psychologically anyway. And then, for her to die at the, you know, relatively young age of, you know, in her early fifties, it just seems like insult to injury on a life that was, uh, you know, she, she went through so many things that she didn't deserve anyway. And then to, to just have a tragic death on top, it just seems like the universe was kind of against her or something. It, it's, it makes me upset and 
sad for her. It feels tragic. And um, I'm in communication with her family and friends, and and I, you know, I'm I'm participating in the. A lot of the grief is happening on her Facebook page, and and um, anyway, so I say this because I want to bring up that grief is commonplace and loss is commonplace to the point that it should be brought up on you know per- percentage wise every time you talk to people <laughs> you know or every fifth time you talk with someone one of your losses and one of the two of your grief processes should be brought up because the two of you are you know among you you probably have a number of losses that you're currently dealing with but that's just not how our society works because we oppress these experiences because we're terrified of death or we have these judgments about being morbid or um, there's also some religious aspects of this too of like well you know god works in mysterious ways and and don't question god's will or you know they're in a better place and everything's good for them now and not everyone believes that even some christians don't believe that and even if that were true it still doesn't deny someone's loss right because okay great they're in a better place but i'm not with them anymore and so and there's of course uncertainty there that's why they call it a faith not a science but it's it's hard and it should be talked about frequently it'd be like if everyone had some essentially everyone is emotionally and cognitively struggling with major events that have happened relatively recently but none of us are talking about it that's not healthy all right, this next email is from patron Mainua from Minnesota. She writes, "When I, what is your take and thoughts on the grief of losing a parent at a young age? I lost my dad when I was 11, and I've always considered myself a daddy's girl. I was glued to my father for as long as I could remember. After his passing, my mom became a very neglectful parent, which now looking back, I understand that she was probably having a hard time with her own grief. Just recently, I came to a realization in therapy that I have never really processed my dad's passing. This came up when my therapist asked me if I ever visited his gravesite or did anything to honor or celebrate his life, and I told her I never do those things. My therapist seemed surprised since I have expressed how close I was to my dad. Yesterday, I finally felt like I was starting to grieve him, and it was an outpour of emotions and a lot of crying. Thank you for always encouraging your listeners to get a therapist. It really pushed me to take the plunge and go for it. And therapy has been great so far. So what is your take and or thoughts about the grief of losing a parent at a young age? End of email. Well, first off, good for you for going to therapy. Uh, It's a wonderful thing that you're doing and obviously needed. And also good for you for letting therapy work, which is great. It sounds like to me what happened was... You are 11 years old, you, your dad died, and then your mom was n- neglecting you. And also, people just generally neglect 11-year-olds or children when it comes to grief. I'll never forget, I was talking with this uh, teenager. I, he was about 17, I think. And he was this totally nice kid, very uh, studious and well-liked and calm and... Um, just very mature. And we started talking about things and eventually we got to this um, moment in his history, I think where his grandfather had died. 
And he he instantly changed. He, he became this angry, resentful, rageful person because his parents didn't tell him when he was 10 years old that his that his grandfather, who he's very close to, was dying. And t- they didn't tell him until he had died. And no, until they were on the plane going to the funeral. They thought they were protecting their son. So, you know, they're... They learned that, oh, grandpa is terminal and he's dying. Well, we can't tell our 10-year-old son because it'll really hurt him. Yeah, it will hurt him. But you know what's worse is being conspired against by everyone around you. <laughs> and and by not allowing someone to reach out to that person. I mean, that's awful. And it's lying to someone. So, yeah, your son, who's 10, will be devastated that grandpa is going to die, but you can't save him from that. That's that's not a reality that you're going to be able to alter. Grandpa will die, it looks like, and to not tell him now just puts it off. You're, you're going to have to eventually tell him, <laughs> right? So he, this you know, 17-year-old kid, he was just so rageful that his family didn't tell him didn't give him a chance to say goodbye to his grandfather and didn't tell him until they were on the plane going to the funeral. It it was something that he felt seven years later viscerally. And so I don't know for you, patron from Minnesota, that at age 11, not only were you dealing with a neglectful mother, but also maybe a neglectful society and extended family, maybe your teachers, your friends, no one was maybe talking with you about it. So it became perhaps impossible to grieve because no one was there to listen, particularly your mom. You might've been following in your mom's footsteps of, of just turning off. And then you become an adult and you're like, well, you know, yeah, my dad died and I I really loved him. And it, it feels like you've resolved it, but then you go to therapy and your therapist is like, so, you know, what do you do? Do you go to the, the grave or, you know, did you do anything to honor his passing? And you're like, huh, I don't know. And then boom, all of a sudden you start, you know, just crying and crying and crying. It sounds to me like you're finally in a venue where someone is inviting you into a grieving space. And this is something that therapy can do wonders for. And not a lot of therapists are very good at this. Um, Because if, if your therapist just you know, took your lead, your therapist would be like, well, you know, it was a long time ago. You're she's over it. There's no use to really, there's no use in really talking about it. But I'm guessing that your therapist was like, I wonder if she's fully grieved. If she, if she had, if she's really had all the support that she deserves around the grief process. And, you know, she kind of pushed in this area and discovered that indeed you, did have a lot of grief left in, in the reservoir. So um, I'm really glad that you're doing that now. You, you deserve that. And it's not unusual, uh, particularly for kids uh, who go through losses. One, again, because of the neglect that society will uh, commit against children because they just think that children don't grieve or that children don't understand or that they just don't want to get into it with the kids. Um, but also because even if you do have a supportive system around you around grief, which is extremely rare, it's not uncommon for kids 
to to have a little bit more difficulty coping with it because you know you're immature you're you don't have the ego resources you might not really even understand fully what's happening and and as you get older there'll be these um, new discoveries Uh, like it wouldn't be uncommon for an 11 year old to have kind of a fantasy that dad is still alive he's you know he's just kind of like on vacation even though cognitively you know that he is dead but you might just be well you know i'll see him again one day because you at 11 can still have some magical thinking some hopeful thinking and then you get older and suddenly you just realize actually no i'm never going to see him again and that's when it kind of hits you in a new way or another thing that could happen is you're 11 years old and then you um, grow up to be the age that he was when he died and suddenly you're like oh my god like from now on he is forever younger than me and that can cause a whole new wave of grief or you get married and he's not there to be at your wedding and and a whole new wave of grief you know that's normal and so uh, i'm glad that you're able to do that you're listening to your body and you're feeling the feelings all right. Well, that does it for that episode. Heavy episode, but I think human episode and something that is important to talk about. This is life. People are emailing in and these are their real experiences. And I hope that we can reduce stigma, bring it out in the open, make it commonplace. It's something that happens. Uh, give permission for people to talk about it. Give permission for listeners to just listen and and don't feel like you have to fix it. Don't feel like you have to dedicate the entire evening to talking about that one thing. Um, you can, you know, gauge the situation and um, uh, things can be messy sometimes and that's normal. Uh, I guess along those lines is if you are grieved, I, I see a, something happening online. Uh, okay, how do I explain it? And I've said this before, I think, is that there are three phases, I think, to grief discussion awareness. The first phase is don't talk about it. So we all know what that's like. The second phase is the grievers are fighting back and they're saying, hey, people, you're terrible at listening and don't do this, don't do that. And what I think this phase involves is good. It's a good phase. It's better than one, phase one. But... It's not as good as phase two. Phase two is I'm grieving and I want to talk about it. And at the same time, I'm going to have empathy for the people listening to me when I'm talking about grief. I think phase two has a little bit too much aggression and blame to the listeners. The, you know, people don't, people aren't born with the inability to listen to grief. They've been programmed. And so, uh, you know, have a little sympathy. The other thing is, is I think a lot of things are being lumped in as like bad behavior. Like people will say, um, you know, I, I don't want to hear thoughts and prayers. I don't want it. That's some, that's some serious bull crap. And I'm like, well, it depends, right? <laughs> because if someone, if that's all they say, you know, you're grieving and they're like thoughts and prayers and it feels like they're just blowing you off, then yeah, absolutely. That's, that's some serious bull crap. But if they care and they're really conveying, they're like, man, my thoughts are with you and my prayers are with you and I am with, and you know, they're really with you and they really communicate that to you. 
then that's not bullcrap, right? So it's not the language, it's not the words, it's the intention and what's being communicated, right? So I don't think we should be focusing on like these phrases. You know, another phrase that will often be vilified is, um, I know how you feel, right? People will say, you don't know how I feel. That's some serious bull crap. And you're a jerk face for saying that you know how I feel. And I get it because a lot of times people will just assume that they know how you feel and they probably don't know how you feel because they haven't really been through what you've been through. And, or they're saying, I know how you feel as a way of just kind of ending the conversation. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how you feel. And yeah, absolutely. That those are jerk faces. But the other side to this is, you know, some people can say, I know how you feel and really be communicating to you empathy that man, I've been there. I know this is rough and I know how you feel. I've, I absolutely know what it's like to lose someone and to be in pain and to not be able to sleep at night and to feel alone and to feel demoralized. You know, I've been there. I know how that feels. So saying, I know how that feels as a, as a sentence doesn't tell us what's being communicated. And I hope that that makes sense. So when we're in phase, because the problem with phase two in our society, which I think we're edging into is it makes all the listeners paranoid about what to say when someone is grieving. And we don't want that, right? We don't, we don't want them more paranoid because they're, that's all part, part of, that's a big reason why they already have a hard time hearing people talk about grief. We don't want them more scared. What we want them to be is to trust their hearts because people care. And when people are afraid, they can't access their hearts. So let's get away from criticizing sentences and, and asking for what we need, you know, just say, Hey, people out there, um, here's what I need when I'm grieving. I need people to hear me, to listen, to be there for me, to show me that they love me, to understand that I'm going through a hard time to give me some slack. You know, those, those are the things I need. And then, you know, people know what that means and, and just let them sort of figure out how to word that, if you will. You know, anyway, so that's what I'll say about that. And to those who've written in to everyone out the else out there that's dealing with a loss and, and they're grieving, because I know probably all of you are, uh, we're all in this together, right? Life is suffering. Life is a series of losses. That That was one thing that I started to figure out as I got older was, in one respect, you know, sometimes people say life is suffering. And I suppose a subset of that is life is just a series of losses before you die. <laughs> and I know that's a very negative way of putting it, but I think that it's true. What well, You know, from the day you're born, you're in a process of dying yourself. You're in a process of, of, of losing things and losing people, saying goodbye to things, you know, saying hello to things as well. But, you know, I think it, you know, by the time you get to a certain age, you've had a certain amount of people die in your life. You've had a certain amount of pets die. You've had a certain amount of divorces or breakups or moves or losses of job, losses of ability. And it's like these accumulate over time. And by the time you're a certain age, you just have this catalog of grief that you're going through at any given moment. And, and that's okay. Uh, That's just the way it's got to be. There's no way around it. Uh, the only way around it is to never get attached to anything, which is its own sadness, right? So it, it's it's life, and 
I accept that. I, I don't like it, frankly. I, in a perfect world, I think it wouldn't happen, but but it does, and there you go. And the tears are real, and the pain is real, and the demoralization is real, and the the giving up, the lack of motivation is real. And that's okay. And and we're all in this together. All of us are grieving. None of us are alone. All of us know what it feels like to lose something. All of us know what it feels like to be sad and to feel like it's hard to go on. All of us know what it feels like to be shut down with our own feelings uh, about grief. And all of us know what it feels like to be isolated in our grief. And we're all together in our isolation. (laughs) And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. (laughs) Thank you.